from Philippians, Philippians 4. Uh, we're going to eventually get into Philippians. Um, if you're using a, a Bible that's provided for you, that's on page 982 in the back of your Bible. But it is good to be back. I feel like kind of I need to wear a name tag or something. Um, but it's, it's good to be back. I, I was sitting in the, in the Detroit airport, uh, through from Louisville to Detroit, and then uh, to Elmira uh, yesterday, and had a couple hour layover in Detroit. Um, the flight was, I was only like two hours in the actual air for this whole trip, but yet I left, the flight took off at about 10.30, didn't get in until around 5. Um, so about seven hours for actually two hours of traveling. So I had some time on my hands. Um, so I wrote down some, some lessons that I could take away from my time, uh, my two weeks at Southern Seminary, and I thought I would share those with you um, as just kind of an update and, and just so you know what the Lord um, has been doing in my heart. And I appreciate the, the privilege that, the, that you as the church allow me uh, to be able to pursue uh, further studies for the furtherance of, of Christ's church, of His kingdom. But lesson number one I wrote down yesterday, and probably the greatest, is just simply, God is faithful. In fact, um, in my office, I have a wooden uh, plaque uh, that's, that has 1 Thessalonians 5.24 on it. Um, someone gave it to me as a, as a graduation gift as I was entering into ministry uh, for the very first time. God is faithful as He who calls you, who also will do it. And um, very thankful just for God's faithfulness. Um, I was kind of actually dreading these past two weeks, um, thinking about, number one, hadn't been away from the family for that long. Um, we, that first week was kind of a, um, on a much lower level, equivalent to an academic uh, uh, military boot camp. So we were in the library from about 8 to 5, 6 every day, um, doing research, working on um, uh, our, our first chapter, our proposal for our project that we're going to be doing. Uh, so you turn in your work, and then you have um, one of the professors uh, with the PhD slashing it and saying, this isn't right, and that's bad grammar, and then turning it back to you and saying, do it again. So that was the first week. Um, so I wasn't really looking forward to that, but um, God was faithful. The second week, um, worked on our, the, the core class, the core seminar um, that I was working through throughout this semester here at, here at home, um, New Testament theology, and, and that was a little lighter, just able to uh, listen to lectures, uh, ask questions, uh, get some feedback on things, uh, but throughout the whole thing, God is faithful. Um, so I was literally praying. I said, I said Lord, uh, I'm a little hesitant about going out. Um, this, whole, this whole ministry degree that I'm working on, um, the goal has been just take it one step at a time, see if God continues to open doors. Um, because the whole thing is not about getting a degree, it's knowing more about God's Word. Um, 
So, so far, that was another open door these two weeks, a a huge hurdle. Um, But there's a difference, I think, with God being faithful. We're going to talk about this a little bit uh, this morning as we look at Philippians. There's a difference between knowing God is faithful and experiencing God's faithfulness. Because I think we would all here acknowledge that God is faithful, that, yeah, we know that. But it's not until God has us do the hard things in life that we actually experience God's faithfulness. And I think that's something that we all need to keep in mind, that I don't know all of the ins and outs of what you all are going through, uh, but a huge part of my sanctification process over the past year has been kind of this added workload that I've been processing through. But seeing God's faithfulness being able to say, I'm obeying you by faith, I'm going forward by faith, and you're going to have to prove yourself uh, on my behalf because this is something I simply can't do on my own. And God calls us to that, but he calls us to that so that we can actually experience his faithfulness, not just talk about it. So that was lesson number one. Uh, Lesson number two that I wrote down is that God's Word, it's a gift, but it's a gift that has to be unwrapped and it has to be used. A couple weeks ago, we just enjoyed Christmas with our families, uh, friends, and I keep bumping into this. No problem. (laughs) Uh, God's God's Word, uh, it's a gift that's been given to us. God has has gifted us with His revelation about Himself and about what He has done. And it's, it's like a gift that's under the tree. And it would be foolish, January or December 24th, then Christmas morning comes, you see a beautiful gift under the tree, you decide not to open it, but boy, you sure admire that gift from a distance. But December 26th comes, 27th, 28th, 29th, on and on and on, and you just leave that gift unwrapped. That's a lot of times what we do with God's Word. We know that God's Word is important. We know that it is is God's story to us, but yet we never unwrap it. It just sits there unused. And sometimes, how foolish would it be if we did on that Christmas morning unwrap that gift and we saw this very valuable thing that that we know is essential to life and someone gifted it to us, but then we just put it up on the shelf, never took the plastic off, never opened the box, even though we know that it's a life and death situation, and we just let it sit there all, all the time. That would be foolish, but yet we do that with God's Word. We may unwrap it. We may know a few verses that we've learned in our childhood, growing up, but yet we're not using His Word. We're not digging in on a consistent basis saying, God, I want to know Your story. I want to know You through Your story. And in pursuing this, Uh, 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 working uh, at this degree um, in biblical theology, it's because I want to unwrap that gift and use it 
in a greater way. And no matter where we're at, if we're studying for something or if we are, are working our jobs and, 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 and we are, are out and about, the goal is the same, that, that we say, God, where we are at, at whatever level, I want to unwrap and use your word. I want to be in it. I want to know you more through it. That was lesson number two. I only have two more. Uh, lesson number three that I wrote down is I've learned, it's been re-emphasized to me over the past two weeks that fellowship in the gospel is sweet. It's sweet. There are f- only four other guys in my, what they call a cohort. Any of you familiar with that term? A cohort is basically a group of, of individuals that are going to go through something together. So uh, in my, in my uh, program, there's only four others of us. So there's five guys from all over the country. I've got one guy, two guys from the Atlanta, Georgia area, uh, one guy from Mississippi, and another guy who, who I uh, roomed with for two weeks is from Portland, Oregon. But it's amazing that despite different accents, especially the guys from Georgia and Mississippi, Despite different backgrounds, I mean, one of the guys in my cohort played a CD for us uh, in the car a while, uh, and I would have never guessed this, but this guy was like in, uh, a heavy metal singer. <laughs> and I was like, that's you? Holy cow. Anyway, we have all different backgrounds, but yet our, our fellowship was so sweet because it was sourced in Christ. And we're able to work in that library all day together, all week together. We're able to interact, talk about ministry, talk about needs, prayer requests, all of those things because of the commonality we have in the gospel. And and that's something we have more in common with an individual from around the world. That we don't know their culture, we don't know their language. We have more in common with that individual than we really do with our neighbor that doesn't know Christ because of the gospel. And, and God desires our assembly, our congregation, our church to have sweet fellowship that's sourced in Jesus and for that to grow deeper and deeper. And then the last thing I wrote down was it was reemphasized to me the kindness of the gospel, the kindness that the gospel represents as demonstrated through the Christian community. And what I mean by that is is, uh, this church body. I appreciate the kindness of this assembly in allowing me to to seek to equip myself, to be able to equip you all in, in in a better way. And also, I appreciate the kindness and being away from the family in two weeks. It was so encouraging to hear so many of you reaching out to Rachel. She's not here. Isaac has a fever. Um, But reaching out to Rachel, whether it was shoveling um, sidewalks or meals or saying, hey, go out, take a break. Appreciate that so much. Because that's the kindness of the gospel. Uh, Undeserved grace, favor, love that's demonstrated through the Christian community. And we have the privilege of doing that uh, with one another 
all the time. So those are four lessons that, that I learned from uh, my trip that I just wanted to share with you. Uh, that's just extra. So we'll just take a 15, 20 extra minutes to tag on to the end of the service now. I'm kidding. I'm, ki- <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, but but uh, thank you again so much for just... Uh, uh, allowing me with time, finances, all of these things to be able to, um, to be able to go all the way to Louisville, which was very cold, by the way, no break from the cold and snow, uh, but to be able to, um, to seek to know God's word better. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness. Lord, you do not call us to easy things, but Lord, you call us to trust in you. And Father, this morning as we look at a promise that's worth holding on to, Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts. Lord, we don't know some of the things that, that we are going through, that that. Maybe the person sitting right next to someone is going through. And Lord, maybe they're tempted to let go of the promises of God. Uh, Lord, maybe Satan is whispering in their ear that you are not faithful, that you will not provide. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that you would renew our faith. Father, that the Holy Spirit would be at work would encourage us, would challenge us to persevere, to not lose sight of the hope that's been given us through Jesus. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Philippians chapter 4, Tim read this passage. We read in Philippians 4.19 a very, very specific promise that God gives his people. Verse 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according, and this is so important, to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You know, many people give us promises in life, right? Many people give us promises in life. And they really don't mean very much. In fact, one of the things that we have to avoid as individuals is overcommitting and promising things to other people and then not following through with it. Because then our promises don't mean very much either. You see, the quality and the value of a promise, it depends upon the source of that promise. So if, if my little three-year-old Julia tells me something like, don't worry, Daddy, I'm going to mow the grass for you tomorrow. I appreciate her attitude and sentiment to want to help Daddy out, but how much am I going to cling to that promise? The quality and, and value of the promise depends upon the source of that promise. So it is not just the words that we cling to, it is the person behind the words that add validity to a promise. 
And we see in Philippians 4 that the context which verse 19 centers around, it's not just a blanket open promise that any little whim that you have, God is going to to provide for. That you're walking down the street and you see this nice, beautiful, huge house and yours maybe isn't as big as, as what you would like and you say, you know what, I'm claiming the promise of God that that house is mine. You think that's biblical? That's not what this verse is talking about. The context of our verse centers around the sacrificial giving of the church at Philippi. That Paul was going through difficulty. Verse 12, he says, I know how to abound and to be brought low. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was going through great difficulty, great need, but he says, God has brought me through that process, like what I was talking about, of experientially knowing God's faithfulness, and that even though I am low, God has caused me to have enough. And when we get to verse 19, the Philippian church see Paul's need. They say, I want to be used by God to meet that need. They send a gift of, of, of money to Paul that was sacrificial for them. And Paul says, I am very grateful for that gift. And guess what? God is going to meet your true needs just like He has met mine. So in their faithful stewardship and service, these Philippian Christians and we likewise were encouraged to hold on to a trustworthy promise. Not because of just the words of the promise, but because of who the promise was centered upon. So the main thing that we're going to talk about this morning is this one simple sentence. We, as Christians, as God's people, we must cling to the promises of God. Let's say that together. We must cling to the promises of God. And the reason we have to cling to those is because many times it doesn't seem like life makes sense. It doesn't seem like it would make sense to sacrifice for God and for His cause, for His greater kingdom, And that's when we have to cling. And we're going to look at three aspects this morning of this promise as it was given to us. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The first thing I want you to to, to realize regarding this promise, this trustworthy promise, is that it is first of all a personal promise. In verse 19, this this verse opens up and it says, And my God. You see, this is a God who knows. He knows. What does He know? He First of all, He knows our sacrificial gifts. You see, in verse 18... Uh, He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, 
a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, when we give, whether we're giving of our resources, and, and we as God's people do need to realize that, that if we are His followers, we are called to give of our resources to His work, to His people. That when we give, whether that's mon- uh, money when we give of our time, when we give of, of our lives, that is not just directed to the person, at least it shouldn't be. That should be a gift done in love for the Lord. And those types of sacrifices are a fragrant offering, acceptable and pleasing to God. You see, we serve a God who knows each of our sacrificial gifts. Not one of them somehow slips through the cracks. But not only does He know of our sacrificial gifts, our God knows His own people. Do you know that our God knows you by name? Do you know that Luke 12.7 says that our God even knows the very hairs of our head that are numbered? I think Rachel told me Mike made a comment of that last week. For some of us, that's less of a challenge than others. Our God knows His people. That's why it says, but my God. This is a personal promise. It's so easy to think, you know what? Somehow, God doesn't really take notice of me. You know, I'm going through the routines of life. I'm going through the monotony of life. I'm going through and just the humdrum of life. Is God aware of me? This is a personal God that we serve. No one slips through the cracks of God's omniscient knowledge and care. Not one of His people. But this calls us then to not only realize when we are given a very personal promise of God that He is going to provide every need that we have, not only does this, uh, uh, an assurance that we have a God who knows our acts that are done for Him, a God who knows who we are, the God who knows our needs better than we do, but this is also a call for us to be a people who know some things. You see, God is personal. That's why Paul can say, my God will supply every need of yours. It's only when you go through the trenches of life and you're clinging to God and you are are seeking to know Him more through His Word It is only when God is doing that difficult process in our life that we can tell other people, hey, you know what? My God will be faithful to you too. Not just saying to someone else in a distant, kind of theoretical sort of way, hey, you know what? God will be faithful. Hey, I'm sure that God's going to provide for that. And that's a very true statement. But boy, is it a world of difference to say, I know He's going to be faithful because He was faithful to me. I have been called to step out in faith 
in various circumstances of my life, God is doing a sanctifying work in our hearts. He's doing the same work in each of us if we're followers of Jesus, making us more like Christ. But the avenues which He goes about that differ upon our needs, the struggles we have with our flesh, and the circumstances that we're at. God may use a certain trial in my life and a certain uh, circumstance that I'm going through that may be totally different than you, but He's doing the same work in our hearts regardless of what it looks like. Do you know that God is personal? Do you realize that there is a reason why David, who also went through great, great difficulty, can say in Psalm 23:1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We read over those, those personal pronouns so easily, so glibly. But he's claiming God is personal. I like what one person says. He says this, just listen along. It will not be on the overhead. The God of the Old and New Testaments is a covenant God. He's a personal deity who loves and watches over His people. Paul's God was also the God of the Philippians and all of them could bask in His loving care. He watches over His people. You see, when we realize this, when we realize that we are called to be a people who knows just how caring, how loving, how committed God is to His people. I mean, man, if there is ever ever an example of God's commitment to His people, it's the children of Israel in the wilderness, is it not? All the bickering, the fighting, the complaining, the turning against God, and the mercy He showed when we start to realize this personal nature of God, this starts to become life-changing. You see, knowing God always affects our actions. In this case, knowing God affected the actions of Paul that he was willing to endure having plenty and not having enough, but finding his contentment in Christ. How did this affect the Philippians? That they were willing, despite their lack of surplus, to sacrificially give. Can I ask you a question this morning? How has clinging to the faithfulness of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, that He has bound Himself to His people, how has that affected your life? in the past month, in the past six months, in 2017, as you're looking ahead to 2018? How has that actually had a change? Or how has that manifested itself in an act of sacrifice, an act of obedience to what God is calling you to? You see, that's the difference between just theological Versus practical. Head knowledge versus a heart knowledge. As if the two can really be distinct. (laughs) 
You see, when we realize just the simple truth of those first three words of verse 19, my and my God, this is life-changing. But not only is this a personal promise, but there's a second aspect of this promise that I want us to look at as we evaluate the trustworthiness of God and His promises. Not only is this a personal promise, but this is also a very practical promise. This is very practical, and there's several ways that this is practical. First of all, it's practical in its certainty. If you receive a promise, don't you want it to be concrete and not kind of up in the air? Yeah, maybe I'll do this, maybe I won't do this, we'll see. One of the most, uh, one of the most uh, unsure things someone can say is, yeah, we'll touch base, I'll get a hold of you tomorrow. And there's no concreteness there. And it's like, okay, we'll see. Well, I'll believe it when it happens. No, the concreteness of this promise is my God will or shall supply. You see, it's, it's, a pra- it's practical in its certainty because it's, it is guaranteed. It's guaranteed that God will supply. In Matthew 6, 28 through 34, uh, we read the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus, he talks about that we are of such little faith. I mean, God feeds the birds. God clothes the, the fields. And if God will do that for, for His creation in nature, how much more will He do that for His own people? It's practical and it's certainty because it's a guaranteed promise and also it is a sufficient promise. He will supply every need of yours. It's sufficient. That word supply has the idea of, of to make something full. That you are fully supplied. Paul recognizes this in his own life as we uh, briefly talked about in verse 12 that he says, I know, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. At the end of verse 11, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Do you think that comes natural to us? No. Paul says, through the work that God has been doing on my heart, I have learned. I have come to the point of spiritual growth, not of my own, uh, my own abilities, but through God's working and putting things in my life that were not favorable. I have been given greater spiritual realities. Greater understanding. And what he has understood that no matter what, God's promises are sufficient. What did Paul pray when when he prayed three times that the Lord would take his difficulty, his thorn in the flesh away? God never says, okay, Paul, I'll finally do it because of your persistence. No, he pretty much says, do not ask again because I'm not going to do it, but know this, here's your answer, my grace is sufficient for you. 
That's not the answer that Paul probably desired. It's not the answer that we desire. But so many times, God's answers to prayers in our life is simply that. Hey, my grace is sufficient. Lean to me. You are leaning to everything else except the one who can truly hold you. You are seeking counsel and advice from everyone else and forgetting the true source of my counsel. It is sufficient. And this promise in verse 19 is practical in its certainty, not just because it is guaranteed or sufficient, but here's the kicker, it is enough. We often don't feel that it is enough, but it is enough. Here's the question for us this morning. When will we say God is enough? There's a book that is, uh, was one of, uh, one of my favorite books. It was entitled, Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. But the problem that I have in my heart and the problem that you have in your heart is too often it's Jesus plus the great job. It's Jesus plus this trial being taken out of my life. It's Jesus plus if I just felt that I was better equipped and talented to serve Him. It's just Jesus plus, like Moses, if I just had the greater voice, if I just had more understanding, if I just had a better mind, if I just had, was, was this or that. And we need to take out the second part of that equation and realize that Jesus is enough. Only He can fill the void in our hearts. You see, this is very practical for us to know God's Word and to dig into it and to know it both in the theology that it presents and in the story that it presents from Genesis to Revelation. That is the most practical thing that we can do because it is out of that that we can then say, Jesus is enough. Because He's the answer to the story and He's the answer to my need. This is a verse uh, promise practical in its certainty, but also practical in its extent. He does say He will provide all of our needs. You see, He gives us what we cannot receive ourselves. You see, we can go out and we can make more money. Now sometimes that's difficult, especially if you're looking for a job and you're not getting hired. You think, yeah, I wish I could make the money. But generally speaking, we can, we can make money. Even if that's working at a fast food place, even temporarily, we can make money. But guess what we cannot make for ourselves? We cannot give ourselves true contentment. Only a reliance upon God through Christ can give that. You see, He gives us what we cannot receive ourselves for ourselves, our true needs. These Philippian Christians were lacking seemingly from, from a, a, a social perspective. 
I mean, they were lacking because they were a minority in, in the culture of Philippi in Roman culture. They were a Christian minority. They were already lacking, but then they're giving what little they have. And Paul says, no, your true need, it's not money, it is contentment. My God will provide that because He's provided it for me in all of the prison cells. You see, we can live our lives in such a way that we lack conflict. That, 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 we, that we have peace with everyone. Sometimes avoiding truth to achieve that peace. But yet, left to ourselves, that is an empty peace because there is only one true peace giver. We can strive to have a lack of conflict, but we will also, if that is as far as it goes, have a lack of true peace. You see, we can seek to prosper in our, in our lives, but to truly abound is only something God can give. We can have abilities, but only God can give true strength. On and on it goes that we are totally dependent upon God to supply all of our needs. Our needs are so much more than just the temporal things that we see. You see, not only does He give what we cannot receive ourselves, but He gives that we may truly enjoy. James 1.17, it says that from God, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see, God is the perfect gift giver. But yet, we, living in the world's culture, in the world's system, screaming at us 24-7, is that God's good perfect gifts are not enough. I must have. I must grasp. I must seek to achieve and accomplish in order to be content. But only in the gifts that God gives can we truly enjoy and relish those without an ending point. See, I can get real excited with the things that I purchase and achieve for myself, but there's going to come a time where that just becomes routine. Only God can give that which truly lasts. Is it time that you look to Him to do a work in your life to enable you to truly find the sufficiency of who He is and of His good gifts because you've been too busy with your arms full of the things that you can grasp. Paul says, for those that are thirsty, there is a God who supplies every true need that we have. You see, this is a personal promise. This is my God that does this. This is your God if you're a follower of Him. This is a practical promise. 
that this is certain, that the extent is that it fully reaches our truest depths of our needs. And this is also, thirdly, a third aspect of this trustworthy God and this trustworthy promise. It is a privileged promise. How does God accomplish meeting our needs? Verse 19 says, this is all done according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You see, we are given these promises because we have the privilege of being God's recipients. These things that can only be given by God Himself are only given to God's own people. They are not given to those that do not know Him, that have not come to Him through what Jesus has done. And what we see being the privileged recipients of God's favor and of His riches is that He gives us His own riches. He gives us according to His, his, his riches in glory. These are, in other words, heavenly riches that the world cannot comprehend. That is why the, 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 the missionary in Iraq who is suffering for his faith and giving out the gospel is much richer and much more content than the American in his closed off uh, subdivision living in his mansion. Because the riches that God gives are heavenly riches. I like what again a theologian says, he says, this supply goes beyond material or earthly provision for He places at our disposal the resources of heaven itself. We see in the book of Ephesians, verses 14 to 16, if you know where Ephesians is, it's just a few pages over. If you have a black pew Bible, it's page 977. In verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That is something that only God gives to His people. And why does He give us those riches? What is the privilege of being God's recipient? Not just that He gives us the resources of heaven, but He gives us those because He has given us Christ. Verses 17 and 19 of Ephesians 3 right here, it says, "...so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith." that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's given us Christ. And in Christ, 
all of our needs are supplied. You see, we have been given the privilege of being God's recipients, but also the privilege of being God's recipients has been given to us through Jesus Christ. Verse 19, He's he's supplied every need of ours according to His riches and glory, and all of this is sourced at the end of verse 19, what are the last three words? In Christ Jesus. You see, we don't have time to turn there. Our time is done. But Romans 8, 31 to 39, you can mark that down and read that later. I greatly encourage you to. We read in Romans 8 that because we are recipients of God's riches in Christ Jesus, that we can know that He is the assurance of our standing before God. We know that we are God's children because God has accepted us because of what Jesus has done. He has supplied. In fact, in this passage it says, if God has given us Jesus, how will He not freely also with Him give us all things? He's already met the greatest need. He's going to meet these lesser needs in our life. The privilege of being God's recipients through Christ Jesus is not only the assurance of our standing before God, but verses 35 to 39 of Romans 8 show us He is the assurance of God's forever faithfulness. Paul asks, what in the world? He doesn't use the what in the world, but that's my own translation. What in the world can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And he goes through two grocery lists of things. Can persecution, can tribulation, can peril, can sword, can can famine, nakedness, uh, having lack of things, can any of that separate us from God's love? No, because through Christ we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. At the end of his second list, he says, nor anything else under heaven can separate us from from God's love. It's almost like he's saying, now if I haven't thought of anything, lump it in in this category, anything else. We are assured of God's faithfulness because we have been given Jesus. And also, he is the assurance, therefore, of better things yet to come. You see, verse 20 of Ephesians 4, I mean Philippians 4, says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, you know what that tells us? That tells us that there's more to the story. There is a forever. We as God's people, and we we will unpack this um, as we continue teaching through the Bible, we are living forever. In a time, as the church, after Christ's death and resurrection, we are living at a time where God has begun His program of bringing all things to Himself. That that process has already come to be. But there is still a not yet. There is still a more to the story until Jesus returns. And we live as His people, 
having Christ, having the Holy Spirit within us, leading us, guiding us, with the assurance that there are yet, even amidst the blessings that He has given us, there are better things still yet to come. And we live for that day. Are you too busy living for the today? Are you too busy trying to make and keep your own promises? Trying to lean upon yourself? Or are you looking to the One who provides the true promise of meeting our deepest, darkest, most needed needs in our life? Only He can do that. So we face the beginning of 2018. This is like January 1st to me. This is the first time I've, sp- I've spoken to you all year. As we look at 2018, is your prayer going to be, God, I want to, to rely upon your provisions through Jesus to meet the true needs of my heart. 2018, God, by your grace, I desire to know personally to know experientially your faithfulness to me. To be able to say, yes, this is where God has brought me through and how He's working in my life. It's not just an out there truth, it's an in here truth. Would you commit today to God that you desire to turn to Him once again? as the true need supplier. Let's pray.